Good to see everyone tonight, and I hope that you've had a good afternoon and a good opportunity to rest, and now we have an opportunity to study a portion of God's Word together, and tonight is our question and answer night where I will address questions that have been asked for us. And just like Brother Shannon read to us just a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist wanted to know... Was Jesus the one who was to come, or was he to look for another? John was seeking information, and he asked a question, and the response of Jesus was, here's what you see. You see the gospel preached, you see people being healed, you see God fulfilling the plan, or Jesus fulfilling the plan that God had set forth for him. As we explore the kind of questions that are asked each month, we realize that some of them are textual Some of them are topical and some of them are practical. Well, tonight we're going to have four questions, and these questions relate to both textual and doctrinal and practical concerns. And so we're going to try to address each of them uh, in their context. So let's go ahead and begin our lesson tonight with question number one. Why don't we extend the invitation at the beginning of the services, isn't it important enough to bring that up first? Now, you know, you think about a question like that, and you know that somebody is thinking. They're trying to, to understand, are we doing what is important in the right order and the right time? Let me begin by pointing out to you that the invitation is an expedient to provide an opportunity for somebody to obey the Lord. Whether we have it at the beginning of the service, the middle of the service, or the end of the service is a matter of choice. It's a matter of how we present it. In fact, if you go through the scriptures, you're not going to find a place in the scriptures where it says you have two songs, you have a prayer, you have another song, you have a Bible reading, and then you have a sermon followed by an invitation and then an invitation song. And the truth is, is it's an expedient Well, if I look at Scripture, here's what I see as I go through. And these are just, I'm going to look at four very brief accounts of conversion. In Acts 2, Peter had preached the sermon beginning back in verse 17. And when he comes to his conclusion in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you read that, you realize that the sermon that Peter preached caused the people to ask a question, What should we do? And then Peter's, if you will, invitation was to say, This is what you must do to please God. You get to Acts chapter 8 and the conversion of the eunuch. And we realize if you begin reading in verse 35 that the question that was asked by the eunuch was about the prophet Isaiah and his prophecy from chapter 53. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? 
Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Here's what I observed from that. You have preaching. Then you have a person, just like in Acts 2, who was asking the question, What do I need to do? What hinders me from being baptized? Third example, Acts 16. In this case, you have the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas have been in prison. Verse 25, they've been singing praises to God at midnight. There are people in the prison who are listening to them, and they know that there's something special about these men, something unique. You know about the earthquake and how that all the prisoners' bonds were loosed. And it says in verse 30, And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour that night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. You start seeing a pattern develop. The pattern is you, you preach to people and then there's a question, what do I need to do? When we are extending the invitation, we are essentially answering the question, what do I need to do? Would it be appropriate to have an invitation at the beginning of the service? Yes. Would it be appropriate to have one in the middle? Yes. Would it be appropriate to have one at the end? Yes. All those are perfect times. In fact, you could have more than one if you chose to do so. But if you're going to only extend one, it to me seems to make more sense to do so at the end, and here's why. Romans 10 verse 17 says very simply, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Someone may come to the service, and they may at that point not even be thinking about obeying the gospel. If you extend the invitation at the beginning, then those people would not respond at all. However, if there's a well-delivered lesson based upon God's Word and that the Word of God pricks their heart, then after the hearing of it, then you can have a conversion. Now here's my spin on the end of it, if you will. Perhaps the greatest challenge is to be sure that one is taught what he needs to do in order to be right with God. When we extend the invitation... It ought to always say, if you are not a child of God, here's what you need to do. If you are a child of God and sin is in your life, here's what you need to do. We ought to answer the question that arises, men and brethren, what must we do? What hinders me from being baptized? What must I do to be saved? Number two. Why do we read versions of the Bible that omit parts of the Scriptures? Is it not sinful to remove from the Word of God? Now let me begin by pointing out that this is an extremely important question. Very valuable question. Translations are important. The texts from which the translations are made are important. Many people are of the idea that when they open their Bible that that's the way that Peter and Paul and 
Apollos and others preached. If you're looking at the Old Testament, it came originally in Hebrew, parts of it in Aramaic. That's a different language. If you look at the New Testament, it's written mainly in Greek with a few little parts that are in Aramaic. So it's a different language. And you have to remember that when Paul wrote a letter to Corinth, he wrote a letter. Once it got there, there were people who made copies of it. They didn't go to the copy machine and play it, lay it on there and say, okay, let's make everybody a copy of it. There were people who copied that by hand, and then someone else who copied that by hand, and copied another by hand, and those were distributed among other people. Now, there's two major groups or families, if you will, of text. They are referred to by the area from which they came. Some are called Byzantine. And that is they come from a place called Byzantium. And uh, these are usually the younger in the sense they're not as old as some of the others. And these manuscripts, if you will, are um, uh, younger because the place where they were found was very damp and they would... Uh, deteriorate, and so if you had one going bad, you had to make another one, and then as it went bad, they had to make another one. The others found at Alexandria in Egypt, and the area there was much drier, and so the the manuscripts lasted a lot longer, and uh, so you, you have those found around Alexandria in Egypt, and you have those found around Byzantium, which is Istanbul, Turkey today, and uh, you start. there's a little bit of difference between them. Not a lot, but just a little bit. Words are spelled a little bit differently. Sometimes there's an extra word. Sometimes there's a lack of word. Now, original text today, like if you're looking at a Greek manuscript, they take into consideration several things. Number one, both of the text families. They look at both of those manuscripts. Number two, they take into account the quotations of the people who lived in the first century, the second century, the third century. And if someone is quoting a passage of Scripture, then they'd say, okay, well, that must be what it said. Then they take into account ancient translations like the Syriac, the Coptic, Latin. And they put them all together and they say, okay, now this one has this, this one has this. What's the most likely reading of it? Now, if you've got a good text, what do you want from a translation? You want it to include everything that the inspired writer put down. You don't more, you don't want less. You want exactly what he put down. You want a translation that faithfully represents the original language in our language today. You want it to be as literal as possible, but also to reflect the idioms that are in the original language. And somebody says, what do you mean by idiom? A good example is, you're pulling my leg. In English, if somebody says, you're pulling my leg, that means they're, they're joking with them. In another language, if you say, you're pulling my leg, that means that you've got a hold of the foot and pulling on it. There are several Hebrew idioms in the Bible. I'll give you one that may be a little crude, but it's one that's found in the Old Testament. There is the standing to urinate on a wall. That's for a man. That's the way it's represented. 
Generally, our translations will put that as, as a man or a male. Sometimes you have to, to put one idiom in another one, but you want it as literal as possible, but recognizing those. And then you want it to be readable. And so, okay, well now let's get to the question now. What about those that cut out parts? You must not tamper with the Word of God by either adding to it or subtracting from it. The Scriptures are very clear on this subject. Revelation 22, verse 19 was referenced, but you have to take also verse 18 with it. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and from the holy city and from the things that are written in the book. In Deuteronomy 12 verse 32 stated very plainly, very simply, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. In Galatians 1, 6-9, he talks about some who would pervert the gospel. He said, it's not another gospel, only there are some who pervert it. And he says, let them be anathema or accursed from God. A good example in the Old Testament is a man by the name of Jehoiakim, one of the kings. Jeremiah wrote, At the direction of the Lord. This is God's word. This is God's message. And in Jeremiah 36, 23, and it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns, that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth and to all the scrolls consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. He didn't like what it said, so what he did, he cut it out. Some people don't like what God has said, and so in their Bibles they attempt to take it out. Someone says, will you give me an example of where this might occur? So I wanted to use one that might be fairly uh, easy to deal with. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. If you're reading the King James or the New King James, you will notice 1 John 5 and verse 7 is there in the text. If you're reading another translation, there will generally be a footnote there that most of the ancient manuscripts do not include 1 John 5, 7, and then they will give the words that are found there. This is actually known as Johannine comma. The comma means something's missing. And uh, the best I can give you is a real short statement that's found in one of the encyclopedias with regards to it. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Erasmus, who produced the Greek text from which the original King James was translated, was said to have replied to his critics that the comma did not occur in any of the Greek manuscripts he could find but that he would add it to a future edition if it appeared in a single Greek manuscript. Such a manuscript was subsequently produced and some say concocted by a Franciscan and Erasmus, true to his word, added the comma in the 1522 edition, but with a lengthy footnote setting out his suspicion that the manuscript had been prepared expressly to confute him. This Erasmus change was accepted into the received text edition, 
the chief uh, source for the King James Version, thereby fixing the comma firmly into the English language scriptures for centuries. In other words, here's one that was put in because a guy said, if you can just find a manuscript that has it, I'll put it in there. Guy found one, and he did like he said he would do. He put it in there, but he put a footnote saying, I don't really believe this is genuine. The bottom line is simply this, that a person needs to make sure that what is in the Scriptures is God's Word. You don't add to it and you don't take away from it. So should we be reading translations where there's a lot that's taken out? No, I don't think we should. But should we also read passages that have been added? I think we should avoid doing that as well. Now let's take the next question. Question number three. If God is all-knowing, then he knows who will populate heaven and hell, correct? Does this not eliminate free will and confirm predestination? Now that's a real challenging question. And it's one that has been debated a number of times throughout history. You may know about the doctrine known as Calvinism. Calvinism says that God has determined from the beginning of time those who will be saved and those who will be lost. And those whom God has chosen to save, His grace is irresistible. You couldn't resist it if you wanted to. And those who are born totally depraved and God, if He doesn't work a miracle upon them, are eternally lost and there's nothing they can do to save themselves. Let me ask you the question. Does God know the outcome of everybody's soul right now? Does he know where every one of us will spend eternity? And the answer is yes. Let me take you to some scripture and prove that. Revelation chapter 17 verse 8. Whose names are not written in the book of life. Listen carefully. From the foundation of the world. God's book is already knows whose names are in that book of life. Isaiah 46 verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The only way God can tell you the end from the beginning is because he already knows what the end is going to be. That's what predictive prophecy is all about. God knows what's going to happen. Or stated very simply by Luke in Acts 15 verse 18, known to God from eternity are all of his works. Known to God from eternity. God is known from the very beginning what will happen. Someone says, okay, well then we have no free will. We're all predestined to do what we do. And that answer is no. Does this mean that God causes a person to be saved or be lost? No, he doesn't do that. Let me explain. Here's a teacher teaching a class and decides to give a test. And the teacher passes the test out to each of the students. And the teacher walks by and he sees the student doodling on the paper. Student not answering the question because the student doesn't know the answer. Or maybe as I have observed on more than one occasion, you have a standardized test 
And you look over and somebody's doing A, B, C, D, C, B, A, A, B, C. In other words, they're going down to the test just marking the next one on every line. What does a teacher know when they see that? They know that student is going to fail. Does that mean the teacher caused the failure? No, not at all. Simply because the teacher knows what's going to be the outcome doesn't mean the teacher caused it at all. Or let me give you another illustration, which is probably more appropriate. You're standing on the hill and you see a train track that goes around a curve. And you're up here, and from your vantage port, you can see a whole lot. And you see this train coming full speed at this direction. But you look also over here, and around this side of the curve, you see another train coming. They're both going full speed, and they're drawing closer and closer. You know what's going to happen? They're going to collide. The fact that you know ahead of time something that's going to happen doesn't mean that you caused it. The truth is, God knows what I'm going to choose. He gives me the opportunity. He gives me the privilege to choose. But God knows what each of us will choose. Question number four. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 22, the words are found, Cursed is he who lies with his sister. Why was Abraham allowed to marry his half-sister, Genesis 20? And verse 12. This is a question that I've been asked before. Sometimes when people call up and say, why did they get to marry their closest of kin? Let me make a few observations for you. Marriage of close relatives was fairly common before the law of Moses. I'm just going to choose a few. I'm not going to give you all of them, just a few. Cain and Seth must have married their sisters. And you say, really? When you go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, and Cain knew his wife. Where did his wife come from? In fact, I had someone call me just a few weeks ago. Where did his wife come from? I said, well, it had to be his sister. And the question that another person asked was, well, could that not have been God created some more women? I said, no. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, For in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and all that in them is. So after the sixth day, God stopped creating. He allowed this world to be, as he told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. So you know that Cain and Seth married their sisters, the descendants of Noah. Noah's descendants would have had to marry close skin. You've got Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, if each of them had children, they may have married sisters, but they would have at least married first cousins. And so you start seeing that uh, there was close relationships there. Isaac married Rebekah, who was his second cousin, if you want... um, Scriptural proof of that, Genesis chapter 24, verse 4, verse 15. He was, um, was sent to uh, his family, and Rebekah was chosen. 
Jacob married his first cousins and Rachel and Leah, Genesis 24, verse 29. He says, now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. And of course, you know about Laban's daughters. You read about Amram. That's Moses' father. According to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 20, now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. He married his aunt. So you say, well, I, I guess there were a lot of those. The key answer to this is found in Romans 4, verse 15, where Paul says very simply, the latter part of that verse, for where there is no law, there's no transgression. There is no statement in Scripture, nor is there any recorded, any oral law given to anybody prior to the law of Moses that says that you cannot marry and beget children by a close relative. Prior to the giving law, there's no restrictions about marrying. However, once that law came as referenced from Deuteronomy 27, then they were not to marry and not to have relations with their next of kin. What that is called today is called incest. And what we do know that by now, and even by the time of the first century, that was considered to be unheard of even among the pagans. Listen to Paul as he condemns the man at Corinth. It is actually reported there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not even named among the Gentiles. But what was that? That a man has his father's wife. That was considered to be an incestuous relationship and was not considered to be scriptural. Now, with all these together, it always must be our desire to learn what God would have us to know. And we always need to be looking at what Romans chapter 4, verse 3 says, For what does the scripture say? We can all give our opinions, we can all give our own ideas, but we always need to say, what does the scripture say? And how should we follow that? But with knowledge comes obligation. The more you and I learn, the more we know what we're supposed to do. And when we learn what we're supposed to do, as John 13, verse 17 says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You listen to what God says to do, and then you do it. You have an opportunity right now. The first question was very simply this. Why don't we have an invitation at the beginning rather than the end? And I made mention of the fact that it's important that you tell a person what they need to do. If you're here and you're not a Christian, here's what God's Word says. We've, we've seen that in these accounts of conversions. There has to first be faith. That comes by hearing the Word of God. From that faith, that belief, that trust that Jesus is the Son of God, a person repents of their sins. That means they acknowledge, I have sinned, and I'm going to change that in my life. They confess that faith, and then they're baptized. That's to be immersed, to be put under the water for the remission of sins. That's why you do it. Once you have done that, your sins are washed away. You are now a part of the body of Christ, His church, and you live faithfully and you'll go to heaven.
you'll be saved. We do recognize that from time to time, those of us who are God's children do say things, we, we do things we ought not do. We've allowed the world to infiltrate our lives and we occasionally need to make things right with God and with our brethren. And the Bible teaches us to confess our faults to one another, to pray for one another. James 5 and verse 16. If you need to do that tonight, we're going to sing the song softly and tenderly. And if you would, would you come as together we stand and sing.